Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Sociology. My name is Michael Johnston. I'll be your host today. New Books and Sociology is a channel on the New Books Network. And today I have Eli Friedman with me to discuss his new book, The Urbanization of People, The Politics of Development, Labor Markets, and Schooling in Chinese City, published by Columbia University Press in 2022. Welcome to the show today, Eli. Hey, Michael. It's great to be here. Excellent. So to start off with, what... uh, what intrigued you to write this book? It's is it a follow up to your first book, or please tell me uh, how you came how you came to write this book, the urbanization of people. Yeah, well, it is a follow up, but it's probably uh, only a follow up uh, to me. I think the continuities between the uh, my my first book, uh, which was about labor politics and focus primarily on the workforce. Uh, And the second book, which is looking at urbanization and questions of schooling for the children of of migrants uh, in Chinese cities, I think that the connection is maybe not obvious uh, to to most people. Uh, But the two really did, um, are are really connected and the second project really did grow quite organically uh, out of the first. Um, the, The overall research agenda is to try to understand processes of rural to urban migration in China and the experiences of those uh, those recent migrants once they arrive in the city. The first book is focused on the workplace and the second book just shifts focus to look at what's happening within schools, but it's the same social group that I'm focusing on. Uh, and the way that I ended up at schools, uh, I, I am trained mostly as a labor sociologist. I work in a school of industrial and labor relations. I, I think of myself primarily as someone who studies labor. Um, but the way that I ended up writing a book about schools was because during my first project, I would be talking to these migrant workers in Chinese cities. And my line of questioning was always, you know, what's going on in the workplace? Tell me about how, you know, you're exploited by your boss, how you contest that exploitation, how the state responds to that. Um, But oftentimes in my interviews, I found that the workers that I was uh, speaking to, particularly somewhat older ones, were as concerned with questions um, related to their, their, their children's education, things that were happening outside of the workplace as they were to those more typical labor grievances. Uh, and so this is something that a lot of 
ethnographers and, and qualitative sociologists uh, will tell you that you should pay attention to what your informants are saying. Um, and if they tell you that something's important, uh, you should follow it. Uh, and so I kept hearing that. Um, and there was a reason why I was hearing more and more of that at that particular time. Um, as, as the workforce was beginning to age and these questions of social reproduction were becoming more important to them. Um, so it, it kept coming up. Uh, I finished my first book and, and even actually before my first book came out, which was in 2014, I had already started this project. Uh, so I went to Beijing um, about 10 years ago uh, and started looking into this and have been working on it uh, more or less for, for 10 years. Excellent. And, and you said labor grievances. Uh, something that stood out as I was reading your book is this uh, concept of citizenship in China, where many of these grievances uh, from migrants related to citizenship uh, related uh, uh, frustrations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it is important uh, to situate uh, the citizenship regime in China, uh, because it's it's pretty distinct from what we know of in in the U.S. in in other liberal democracies or even other non democracies around the world. China is a very unique system. Uh, the way that I think about uh, citizenship in China, of course, when it comes to the question of political rights, there are many fewer in China than there are in most other countries, um, but they have this very elaborated subnational citizenship regime. The way that I think about it is that China has created a national labor market over the last 40 or so years during the process of economic reform. So you as a citizen of the PRC are free to go anywhere in the country uh, to find a job uh, and to receive a wage uh, in exchange for your labor. But social citizenship, uh, is structured at the level of the city uh, and social citizenship here referring to access to all kinds of social services, uh, be it healthcare, be it pensions, subsidized housing, uh, and a particular concern to me, access to public schooling. So that is <laughs> all sorts of social problems follow from that basic kind of tension, right? That people can go to cities, they can get jobs there. And in fact, rural people largely have to go to cities to get jobs because uh, the cities are the most economically dynamic places, whereas rural areas have been systematically um, kind of excluded from, from uh, government fiscal support and, and the, the market has not been favorable to them. So they kind of have to go to cities in order uh, to survive. Um, but once they get to cities, they are not full citizens. They don't have access to social citizenship. Um, the way that that's enforced is through this uh, system called HUCO, which is extremely important for uh, understanding this book and I think is extremely important really for understanding any, any of the social problems that we see uh, in contemporary China. So HUCO, um, it's literally translated as the household registration system. It was implemented in 1958 um, when Mao was still in power. And the essential feature of HUCO is that uh, it ties this provision of social services, including healthcare, education, et cetera, to a specific place within China. And if you want to leave that place, um, you need uh, official permission in order to transfer your HUCO from one region to another. And getting official permission to transfer uh, your HUCO is, is not always a straightforward proposition. Now, the way it operated in the Mao era was quite 
different. It really radically demobilized labor. Uh, there are some interesting studies that compare Mao era China with the Soviet Union. Uh, and what they found is that even the Soviet Union had much more movement in the labor market than did China. So there was very, very little movement between rural and, and urban areas, between rural and rural areas, or even between urban and urban areas. People really were kind of fixed in place for all sorts of reasons, but fundamentally so that they could uh, extract surpluses from the rural population and use that to invest in urban big push industrialization um, that they were pursuing in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, so that, that's when the system was, was implemented and it's changed in all sorts of ways, um, in the era of, of market reform. Uh, but, but that basic, um, the basic administrative arrangement remains where you need official permission to switch your household registration from one place to the other. And in some ways, it's a, it's a form of biopolitics, right? It's a way of controlling population and how they move across China. In some ways, because they have to change registration from one location to the next, and the government might well say, sorry, you're not able to move to this different location based on maybe some strategic uh, or political motive behind it, correct? That's absolutely the case. Um, and the book does engage a lot with theories of biopolitics. Um, for Foucault, the basic idea behind biopolitics is uh, the power to make live and let die. It's that's a pretty kind of vague formulation, which you know Foucault frequently has these these generative but somewhat vague uh, uh, formulations. Um, I think a couple things need to be noted about how I use biopolitics. The first is um, I don't think of biopolitics in in strictly biological terms. That's the way it's been used, I think, by a lot of people. And 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 frankly, biopolitics has not really been taken up by sociologists too much, which I think is is kind of a shame. Uh, but one way of extending it in a way that I think is maybe more appealing to sociologists is to think about life not just in biological terms but in social terms, right? So it's about who's allowed to live not just biologically but to live socially, and then you know, in contrast, who is allowed to die, that we should not think of this just in sort of literal biological terms being subjected to death or the risk of, of biological death, but also being subjected to social death, right? The denial of, of kinds of social needs. So, so that's how I think about it. But, but I also think that it's important to think about, um, biopolitics, uh, by sort but but kind of deploying a, a spatial perspective so thinking thinking about you know who's allowed to live who's subjected to to death or the risk of death and in what spaces and at what time um and so using that kind of formulation the chinese state has more biopolitical capacity to intervene in these distributions of life or distributions of social life so figure so thinking about you know, who can live in which spaces at what time. And Huko is is the key kind of governing technology that they have to realize these biopolitical aims. And it's been put to very different kinds of uses. So the way it got deployed in the Mao era in the 1950s and 1960s was very different than the way that it's used um, today. But there is this kind of through line, which is that the state has uh, immense capacity uh, to control movements of people. And we've even seen this right up until the most recent uh, lockdowns uh, in Shanghai as a result of um, uh, the, the COVID pandemic. 
um, you know, the state can just do all kinds of things that most states cannot in terms of uh, thinking about where people are allowed to live. Uh, so, so that's one of the theoretical perspectives that really uh, informs the book. So discipline and punishment sort of, but not not bodily, but instead spatially disciplining people and punishing them uh, based on, uh, I believe, uh, Foucault is a uh, is a. Uh, point system that relates to housing registration, right? And and uh, who is most needed and where they're most needed is based on the points that they have that they have earned as, as uh, in the housing registry. Is that is that part of it also? Yeah. So over the last number of years, they've increasingly moved in this uh, direction, where one of the ways that that cities uh, kind of filter the population or the the kinds of the rural population that they that they allow to gain citizenship within the cities, they're using these point based kind of metrics, um, and this is to some extent uh, modeled off of Canada's immigration model. Uh, so if you know if you're applying for a Canadian citizenship, they have this point based approach, right? Where the higher education you have, the more points you get. You know, if you speak English or French, you accumulate more points, and and the, the basic logic we see in lots of international immigration plans, right, where states are trying to bring in just these kind of elite um, uh, people in these elite positions in, in labor markets. And Chinese cities are doing the same thing, but on people who are nominally at least citizens of the People's Republic of China. So if you want to, and these don't exist in all cities, but they exist particularly in the largest um and wealthiest city. So if you want to move to a city like Guangzhou or or Shenzhen, these are two very large uh, wealthy cities in Guangdong province. They they now have these point-based hukou applications. So if you want to move from a um, really any part of China, it doesn't have to be a rural part. It could be a smaller city and you want to kind of move up this urban hierarchy into these larger and wealthier places. You can apply and you accumulate more points uh, for the more education you have. So if you have, you know, just a primary school education, you, you, you're probably going to get no points. So you get high school, you know, you get a certain number of points, more points for, for being college educated, still more points for, uh, for a graduate degree. Um, that's the most important way that you can go about accumulating points. You can also accumulate points by having paid into the local uh, tax schemes um, through income tax uh, or through business taxes. You can accumulate points for having paid into the local social insurance plans. Um, and, and generally, the more years that you've paid in, um, the, the, more, uh, the more points that you can accumulate. Some cities like, like Beijing will have these cutoffs that say they won't even consider your application unless you've paid into the social insurance plan for, uh, for six years. It's worth noting that social insurance in China is also managed at the level of the cities, right? So they don't have nationwide social security. It's just at the level of the city. So the city has a strong vested interest in getting more, you know, more money into that fund. Um, another extremely important way that you can go about accumulating points is through owning property. Uh, and some people have pointed out that they use Huco acquisition as a way of regulating the real estate market as well. So when they want, when they want, more people coming in to, to, to purchase properties, they can give them more points on Huco. If the real estate market gets kind of overheated, which has happened frequently in, in Chinese cities over the last uh, in a, a generation or so, then they can, they, they can sort of pull back on that and, and, and de-incentivize uh, owning property. Um, so 
these are these are the the key ways that you can accumulate points. It varies from city to city, and it changes from year to year. Once you reach some sort of point threshold, then you're allowed to apply for for huko. You're allowed to apply essentially for for local citizenship. You're still not guaranteed that you will get citizenship uh, if you if you get to that point threshold, but you can apply. And then uh, each year they will have a set number, a quota, a number of people who will be able to get that local huko. And, um, and then once you pass that, then you can enjoy the same rights to social citizenship that the urban citizens uh, uh, have. It's also worth noting that this is not a kind of a mass um, it's not amnesty, but it's not a mass citizenship program that even in very large cities, you know, cities that have a population of, say, 10 million, 12 million, they're still only giving out maybe tens of thousands uh, of local citizenships per year via these these point based plans. Um, so I think of this, uh, you know, you started the question asking uh, uh, about Foucault um, and thinking about how people are disciplined. You know, I, I don't really see this as like a citizenship plan. I see it first and foremost as a form of disciplining populations, right? Creating these kind of metrics and the population then is supposed to look at these and see the things that they are supposed to do in order to be kind of productive, well-governed uh, subjects. And they can kind of strive for that. But the likelihood of, you know, most people getting these is, is extremely small. And in some ways, I saw it as a push up pull as I was reading through it. I couldn't think of it, but like a, a real life Sim City or something where the lo- localities are trying to create their own vision as to what their urban uh, space looks like, whereas the non citizens were trying to push back in order to, you know, gain some at least freedom through citizenship. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I haven't played SimCity for a very long time, so I'm trying to remember it. But, but what I, what I recall about SimCity, there's a couple of things that are similar. One is that kind of the God perspective, which uh, certainly urban planners uh, in in Chinese cities and and in many cities around the world uh, assume that kind of God position, right? Uh, you know, Chinese urban planners have a few more tools at their disposal than they do in most other places. Um, but one of the things <laughs> that is, I think, true for both SimCity and Chinese urban planners is that the rural spaces are outside of their purview, right? So like people are just showing up and like, you don't know where they're coming from. Um, you're, you're sort of, you, you have these kind of blinders on, right? And you're just looking at this particular uh, urban space. Um, but uh, this question of resistance and, and how people, um, you know, look for workarounds, um, either through various informal arrangements um, or there's actually there's also overt forms uh, of protest against this uh, patently unequal uh, citizenship regime. You know, all this stuff is happening um, and they have forced some changes and, and there have been, I think, some victories. Um, you know, there's not a full fledged um, what we might think of as a civil rights movement in kind of American parlance like that. That has not emerged for all sorts of reasons, um, but there definitely are stresses uh, on the system. And uh, I'm glad that you bring up this this uh, movement into the urbanization of China and people moving inward. There is definitely this need uh, of labor in order for people to gain migrants to gain capital. But too much labor force results in a fear of urban China overpopulating. How could this be balanced in China? Yeah, this is um, something that I talk about in the, the book as the urban growth dilemma. 
So on the one hand, uh, cities have this need for abundant and cheap labor. And if we look at what Chinese cities have done over the past 40 years in the era of market reform, they've done a lot to, to, to bring bring rural people in as workers, right? And this was not a foregone conclusion. I mean, we think back to the late 1970s in China, there was no national labor market. It was impossible. You couldn't just come from the countryside to the city and, and sort of say, hey, I'm looking for work, right? Because we have a, a, a centrally planned uh, economy um, and there is, you know, for all intents and purposes, no, no labor market. That has changed, right? So now cities have made it legally, administratively possible for for anyone who is a PRC citizen to show up uh, and to at least seek work, if not actually be guaranteed of finding work. Um, so, and they've done that because uh, of the model of growth that urban cities have uh, pursued uh, during this period of time, uh, initially anyway, very focused on this low-end, labor-intensive, export-oriented manufacturing where they're producing all of the goods that we buy in the United States and in, in other wealthy countries around the world that are made in China, right? So having this large, abundant workforce was was essential. And in fact, many Chinese economists have referred to it as China's key comparative advantage uh, during uh, that initial phase of economic reform. So so that's the, the, the kind of the impulse to bring workers in, but uh, it's not without some... Um, challenges or shortcomings, at least from the perspective of urban elites. Uh, the first one uh, is this potential fear of unrest and social chaos. This is something that is uh, kind of deeply embedded, I think, in Chinese political elites' uh, way of seeing the world, uh, which is this idea that if there's too many people coming in, that it's this unregulated flow of people, that it will lead to social chaos and potentially political chaos. And they'll frequently point to the the big slums that have emerged in in other places, uh, say in in South Asia, in Africa, and in Latin America, and they're very consciously trying to avoid that. There are slums in China, but they they look different than than many other places. so that's one. And then the, the other issue is that uh, they they are then faced with the question of reproducing those workers, right? So workers need to come from somewhere. Um, many people have pointed to uh, one of the, the key advantages that China had in the economic reform um, period was that its rural workforce was actually relatively speaking, quite healthy and quite well-educated compared to other places, say, in, in Southeast Asia or, or in India. Um, life expectancy increased pretty dramatically in the Mao era. Literacy increased pretty dramatically uh, in the Mao era as well. So, you know, you had all, all of these investments in people that were starting to pay off from a market standpoint. But when people are coming into the cities, um, the cities haven't had to pay any of those costs of the formation of that worker, right, through education, through healthcare, et cetera. They kind of show up uh, as teenagers, they work for the best years of their life, and then they, the idea anyway was that they would go back to cities. Well, you know, anyone who studies uh, migration knows that sometimes people stay, uh, and and this presents... Um, problems from the perspective of the city if they're going to pay the the full cost of the social reproduction of that workforce then the cost of that labor is going to go up their tax bills are going to go up their their fiscal outlays uh, are going to go up and so that creates this kind of fiscal crunch so these things sometimes push cities to want to expel 
the migrant workforce. And we've seen waves of this in various cities, um, particularly in the last uh, 10 years. But to the extent that they're successful in expelling these workers, then they undermine that large, that, that sort of abundant and cheap workforce, right? Um, they're depriving themselves of the labor that, that, the, that the urban economy depends on. So I call this the urban growth dilemma. I see these kind of ongoing problems and sort of potentially contradictory imperatives that, that city governments have to try to mediate. So how do they go about expelling the waste? I, I think that's what they would be called, right? As human objects of waste that aren't really producing as much as the, uh, well, cities once would expect them to. Yeah. One of the, the pretty unfortunate terms that government officials often used is this is the low end population. Uh, the, the central government tried to crack down on the use of that term and deny that it was uh, an unofficial slogan, but they have used it uh, uh, quite a bit. And so they, they're very, um, there's a very elitist, I would say, uh, intuition among, um, among city governments where particularly the elite cities, right? Where they think of themselves, if you're in a city like Beijing or Shanghai, they think of these as being for elite people. And so they see working class, uh, poor people, people engaged in, in various kinds of precarious labor gig or the gig economy um, as being the so-called low end population as not fitting with um, the developmental needs or perceived developmental needs, at least of the city um, in those kinds of so-called tier one cities like Beijing and Shanghai. Uh, they're, they're very explicit if you look at um, their hukou acquisition policies. Uh, they want to attract people who are going to work in, uh, in finance, in government, in higher education, um, in media. Um, and they see this as being essential as the phrase that they use is optimizing the population uh, for the fierce competition in the global marketplace that they that they see emerging uh, between Chinese cities and other you know superstar cities around the world, Tokyo, London, New York, et cetera. Um, and and so when it comes to the the, the so called low end population, they just don't see them as as having a necessary a place in the city. Now I should say that that's just. The, the, that's kind of a political ideology. Uh, I don't think this will come as, as a surprise to, uh, to any sociologists. Um, but the truth of the matter is that Beijing, uh, which is where I did most of my research, is just like any other city. It's like New York City or Los Angeles or London. It requires all kinds of work uh, that is accomplished by working class uh, and poor people. You know, the the nannies who are taking care of the children of the finance workers, the security guards, which are ubiquitous uh, in, in China's uh, gated communities, uh, the, the taxi drivers, the people selling vegetables and fruits uh, on the street. You know, the city can't function without without those people. So it is it, it is an ideology. It's not a kind of a, an actual description of reality. But there is a stigma because one of the things that you mentioned people could lose in this call system is points for unlawful, unlawful behavior, being affiliated with or organizing against the state, being over 45 years of age, or having children born in violation of the birth control policy that was in place. So in some ways, it's, it's no different than any other uh, 
in, in any other city in terms of who is the uh, most rewarded and the most prestigious uh, population at a city and who's the least, but it's made somewhat more formal through a, through a political system like they have in China. Is that, is that right? Is that a good way of framing it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you can see a lot of the basic dynamics that we see in, in Chinese cities captured in other countries' immigration regimes. Most other countries don't have the same capacity, as I've already noted, to manage the internal movement of their own citizens. But if we look at general kind of bordering practices that exist in the United States, in Europe, um, we see very similar sorts of patterns around who who these who these nation states value, who they want to allow into their borders, um, you know, which kinds of people will be will have access to state subsidized forms of social reproduction like you know, healthcare, housing, um, education, um, etc. So, uh, so, so you know, th- th- there absolutely are are uh, important parallels uh, there as well. Excellent. So the. Uh... Let's let's stay on the topic of the most the most desirables. Let's call them the desire uh, the ones who are most desirable. There's this uh, fast track system or green card policy that you mentioned in your book about uh, provinces having some provinces and cities in China having some flexibility in adopting this fast track or fast track or green card policy. What is it used for? Yeah. So th- this is potentially a little confusing and and maybe getting a little too into the weeds of these administrative arrangements. Um, but uh, let, me, let me try to break it down a little bit. So in parallel to these, th- these point-based, sometimes in parallel, sometimes separately to these point-based HUCO acquisition plans, there's also have emerged these, these green card uh, plans for allowing non-locals to establish residency. These are more prevalent, not in the the like the so-called first tier cities, the Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou uh, mega cities, but in in from American standards, you know, very very large cities that might only have like you know four or five million people. So we're talking like you know provincial capitals, um, places that if you have not been to China, you might not be uh, very familiar with, but like Changsha, which is the capital of Hunan, Hunan province, Xi'an, which is the, the capital of uh, Shanxi province, uh, Chengdu, which is the capital of Sichuan province, places like these. And, and it's oriented towards very similar things, attracting what they call either human talents um, or sometimes referred to as the, the high-end population in opposition to the low-end population. So they'll they'll lay out you know, various kinds of um, incentives to try to get particularly young college graduates that have a certain set of skills that the city has identified as being uh, key to its economic development moving forward, and and they'll give them various kinds of benefits. So in in the case of um, Wuhan. Um, which is, uh, you know, prior prior to COVID, it was it was just uh, the capital of uh, of Hubei Province, a, a very very large city uh, in its own right. Um, they were they were uh, constructing these huge um, apartment complexes. One of the big challenges that young people face uh, moving to Chinese cities, like cities around the world, is the uh, extremely high cost of, of housing and, and getting set up. It's in some ways particularly pressing uh, for young Chinese men because it's oftentimes seen as a prerequisite for marriage uh, that a man own an apartment. And so if you're 
22, 23, you've just graduated from college um, and, you know, you want to be uh, seen as a desirable partner, getting an apartment is is an important first step. Um, so they built these, these you know, highly subsidized apartments that for people with a certain set of skills, they could, um, you know, they could, they could get access uh, to these apartments. Um, sometimes uh, the, uh, the benefits that they give are, seem a little bit, um, I, I'm not sure how, how well they work. I'll just put it that way. But for instance, in Chengdu, as part of their green card plan, uh, you get free visits to the Panda Research Center. Um, so, you know, uh, Sichuan province is home to pandas and, and maybe that works for some people. Um, but you know, the, 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 the specifics of, of each city's plan, I, I can't really get into, but the basic point is really the same as with these point-based, uh, HUCO acquisition, which is to say that they want to uh, try to attack, uh, attract whatever they, they've identified as being talented people. Um, there, there's one other point, which is um, a bit of an extension, but in some cities, including Beijing and Shanghai, they've even established these so-called green card policies for foreigners. Um, and there was a certain irony. Uh, the, uh, the first announcement, I believe, of, of this green card policy for Beijing was in 2017. Um, and, and of course, with foreigners, they, they would not have access to PRC citizenship. It, it's quite difficult to naturalize as a PRC citizen. But for, again, a certain list uh, of kinds of workers, most importantly, uh, I think finance was, was high on the list. Um, they would then have access to all of these other social services that the migrant workers who are PRC citizens were being excluded from, including public education and, th- and things like that, housing subsidies. Um, and there's a real irony, not, not only in that the, these rural migrant workers are in general excluded from these services, but in, in November of 2017, there was actually this mass expulsion of migrant workers, a demolition of all of these informal housing communities, um, and estimates uh, hold that up to 100,000 people were displaced at this time. And, and the, the stated reason for it was basically that Beijing has too many people, and this is this kind of ideology that you hear quite a lot. Um, but it wasn't that Beijing has too many people, right? Because they're creating these other plans to bring other kinds of people in. So too many, of, too many people of a certain kind, then, right? Is that exactly. yes, exactly. So, so that's really one of the key points that I try to make in this book, um, which is when people talk about the HUCO household registration system, uh, oftentimes there's a real focus on the exclusion and clearly they are exclusionary. And that's mostly what we've been talking about. But I think it's, it's really important to see that it's not just about exclusion. It's about including certain kinds of people and excluding others. And so the research is really about trying to pin down who are those people that they want to include and who are the people that they want to exclude and, and how does that change over time? Which then also leads to the next topic about the the schools, the public schools, the reproduction, and how this uh, class status, this uh, position, positionary status that people hold in China, and how it's reproduced through the education of young people uh, who were born into families that were either high end, and which then there's more opportunities available, more life chances available for them. And then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, low class, low end people who uh, who have very few opportunities in urban China and how their class position, their status is reproduced through the schools that are available to them. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, uh, so the... Um... 
So again, if let, let's sort of imagine someone who moves from a rural area to Beijing, the place where I've, I've done most of my research, basic patterns are similar in other uh, very large cities. Um, if you can't get Beijing hukou, which is going to be true for the overwhelming majority of the people who move to, to these cities, and, and just as, as sort of a side note, China currently has about 300 million migrant workers or 300 million migrants, people who are living outside of their place uh, of, of household registration. So it's like basically a United States size population of people um, who have forsaken their guaranteed right to, uh, to access social services. Um, now, when you show up in Beijing, it's actually not uh, a, a categorically ex- uh, 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 sort of segregated system, right? So, I mean, if you think of uh, sort of Jim Crow as, as one other example, right? This is categorically um, segregated. There is no sign on the front of, uh, of the city that says no migrants allowed, or there's no sign on the front of public schools that say no migrant children allowed. They say, the, the, basically, you are not guaranteed access to the schools. So if you are a Beijing citizen, you are guaranteed access to those schools. If you are a non-local, then you can get in, but only under a certain set of conditions. And so the first question that I wanted to ask when I was doing this research was, what are those conditions? Um, And given those conditions, who's likely to be included and who's likely to be uh, excluded? If we look at the the set of conditions, what we see is that they favor uh, people who are already well off, people who have already high levels of cultural capital, already high levels of uh, economic and social capital. So um, I could just walk you through some of the the permits that are necessary. So in Beijing, until pretty recently, uh, they had something that was called the five permits, and recently it's been reformed. Unfortunately, not in a, in a particularly positive way. But so, if you wanted to get your child into a public school uh, in Beijing and you are not a, a local citizen, you had to first present um, your hukou, your household registration. You had to present a labor contract, uh, a lease to your house. Uh, proof of social insurance, and then a final document, which is a little bit strange and counterintuitive. You had to prove that there was nobody in your home village who could look after the child. Um, so this basically what this last permit means is that you had to go back to your home village, take time away from work and pay the transportation. You know, some people live 2000 kilometers away from Beijing. Uh, you'd have to go back to your home village, pay a bribe to some local official to, you know, put their stamp on this piece of documentation, which from a logical standpoint doesn't even make sense, right? You can't prove a negative that there is nobody who can look after the child. Um, but I, I'd also just like to touch on those these other uh, documents a little bit uh, just to clarify uh, who's being excluded by them. So the first thing with hukou, uh, you don't have to show that you have Beijing hukou, right? It can be your, your the hukou from your, uh, from your native um, uh, village. Lots of people, particularly people who are born in violation of the birth control policy, the, the used to be the one child policy has recently been increased to the three child policy. But if you're born in violation of that and you can't pay the fees, that means that child does not have hukou, right? So this disadvantages people who don't have the money to pay the fees. Labor contract, uh, we have vast swaths of the China's labor market, which are informal or the gig economy. 
those people are not going to be able to provide a labor contract um, lease. You have most working class migrants uh, in the city of Beijing are living in informal housing and so will not be able to provide uh, a rental lease. Um, and then social insurance. If you're an informal worker or even if you have a labor contract, lots of unscrupulous bosses are not paying the required social insurance. And so, you know, you won't be able to provide that either. Um, so I talk about these 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 kinds of filtering mechanisms as um, as like a um, a negative means test, right? So if we think about a means test for welfare uh, as as trying to you need to demonstrate that you have a need in order to be able to receive access to some kind of welfare. This is kind of the exact opposite. You need to be able to demonstrate your lack of need, and then you can access public schooling. And everyone who's excluded from those public schools, then the only option for them are these informal, fully privatized schools that are called migrant schools. And so what the the effect of that is, is that these informal migrant schools concentrate the least well-off, the most informal, most precarious people in these schools. And the schools are entirely dependent on tuition, right? But the families don't have very much money, so they can't charge very much tuition, which means that the schools are, you know, kind of a mess. Yes, yes. And, and then also, it, it, to, to me, it breeds what we would call, at least locally, a cycle of poverty, because uh, the education that has been provided to them is less than adequate. Uh, some of the conditions that you mentioned were things like asbestos, narrow pedagogy, limited extracurricular activities and co-curricular activities, including things like few opportunities for sport, music, or arts that might be available for uh, a high-end person who is able to show those five components of uh, 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 the formality that you just mentioned, the five components. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely the case. Um, you know, outside of China, we oftentimes think of private schools as being the, the fancy ones for rich people and, and public schools as being the, the less well-resourced. Um, China does have some very elite private schools, you know, international schools and things like that. Um, but if you're in, in most big cities, the best schools are, are likely to be the public schools. It's not to say that there isn't stratification within the public school system. There, there absolutely is. And I can talk more about that if you're interested. Um, but going to these private schools means that you are facing, as, as a migrant worker, means that you're definitely facing bad conditions. I mean, and this is where I did most of my field work. Uh, the, the basic physical plant in these places would just not conducive for learning. So you mentioned the asbestos tiles. Uh, many of the schools that I visited in Beijing did not have indoor plumbing, right? So it was just an outhouse. Um, and, you know, Beijing is hot in the summer and cold in the winter. I mean, it's kind of like being in the northeast of, of the U.S., um, it's, uh, they, you know, they had holes in the roof, rain would come in sometimes in some of these schools. Uh, there was basically, uh, many of them had very little in terms of a playground. Oftentimes it was just kind of a potholed basketball court or something like that. So the, the basic physical plant was, was a problem. Um, and they couldn't pay their teachers very much. Uh, the, the teachers, uh, you know, I, I'm a labor scholar, so I was very interested in the working conditions for the teachers. In Beijing, teachers were universally paid, almost universally, I should say, less than minimum wage, or they would be earning minimum wage, but they would have to work 60 hours rather than the legally required 40 hours in order to make that minimum wage. Um, and so, you know, these were really poverty wages. 
and and as a consequence, um, you know, a lot of these teachers are incredibly dedicated, but they thought of it as more or less like volunteer work. Like they were doing it because they cared uh, about these migrant children and wanted to, you know, make some contribution to society, but it was not sustainable uh, as a career. Uh, and so what that means is that you had very high levels of turnover among the teachers, um, the teachers that were highly qualified and that did well um, as measured, at least by, by student test scores would get recruited by public schools um, and they would invariably go because, you know, public schools, uh, the wages were significantly higher. You actually had benefits like like healthcare and, and retirement, um, which they did not in, in the migrant schools. Um, and your workload was much was much lighter. So so that means that there's just this constant stream of people coming in and and going out. And and unfortunately, um, you know, all of the best teachers uh, would leave if they had the opportunity. And I remember reading that about the the teachers and thinking to myself, uh, what about high achieving students who were in these schools? Were they ever recruited by the public schools also? Yeah, they were. Um, One of the key ways that public schools uh, in China are evaluated by the Department of Education is by their students' test scores. So if you had a student who, you know, came from difficult circumstances for whatever reason, they were extremely industrious or naturally gifted or whatever, um, had very high test scores in one of these migrant schools, that would also help them in getting admitted to a public school. And I should say that there's all sorts of informal routes into public schools. I just mentioned uh, the, the kind of the official permits that you're supposed to have, but there are also informal ways bribes are almost always necessary uh, for people who are not locals in order to get in. Um, but so if, you know, you have a child who has really outstanding test scores, like that's definitely going to help them get in because it bumps up that public school's uh, average test scores as well. And so the consequence of this is uh, the, the phrase I use to describe migrant schools is concentrated deprivation, right? So you have this concentration of, you know, the least well-resourced families in these schools and all of the best teachers, or at least highest achieving, I don't want to kind of have a normative assessment here, but all of the highest achieving teachers and students uh, would leave to go to the public system, leaving behind, uh, you know, everyone else. Now, you did get into higher education, but naturally, one would think that if this is existing in a, in a K through, uh, you know, the compulsory education system in China, then naturally it would start to carry over into local universities in China. Uh, have you started researching that or, you know, thinking more than what, than, uh, what you were able to provide in the book about uh, how this impacted higher education in China? I haven't done extensive research uh, on higher education, um, and I haven't done any field work or or, or interviews. Um, That being said, uh, I'm a professor, uh, and I've I've spent a lot of time living in China and talking to people. and And the question of of university admissions is an incredibly hot topic in China, and and very intensely debated. So I've just described uh, the situation that I just described. Um, about getting non-local children into schools. I've been talking about compulsory education, which is grades one through nine. Uh, According to education law in China, compulsory education is uh, supposed to be free. Um, Of course, that only applies to people when they are living in their place of official registration. So, you know, if you leave somewhere, then it's not not necessarily going to be free. Um, 
so it is it is you're not categorically excluded as i said as a non as as a rural migrant from getting access to public schools during this um, uh, compulsory education. You are, however, categorically excluded from taking the university entrance exam when you are outside of your place of HUCO registration, right? So why does that matter? Uh, it matters a lot, right? Because this means that people who are applying to universities that are in Beijing, when they have Beijing residency, have, are hugely advantaged. Uh, so if you want to apply to Peking University, for instance, uh, I, I have the numbers actually somewhere in the book and I, I, can't, uh, um, I can't remember them, but you're something like 40 times more likely to get into Peking University applying from within Beijing than you are if you apply from the surrounding province, which is Hebei province. Now, this is really significant because, not surprisingly, all of the best universities in the country are in the very large cities, and the very large cities are also the ones that are most difficult to get uh, hukou in. So if you're applying to, to Peking University, to Tsinghua University, uh, to Fudan or Jiaotong Universities, which are top universities uh, in the city of Shanghai, um, it's going to be much, much harder to do it from a large uh, rural, largely rural province than it will be if you're living within those cities. And so, you know, along with what's happening at the primary level, I just see at, at each step at the, the primary, secondary and tertiary, we see the system kind of militating against uh, greater equality and, and, and all kinds of ways in which uh, there's um, uh, in which both the fiscal arrangements uh, as well as these administrative arrangements are, are likely to increase inequality. And higher education systems that likely uh, highly specialize. I would guess that in China, uh, the the college university education is very specialized, is very narrow, and in those fields, they're highly desirable fields that would pr produce more capital for the graduates from those universities. Is that? I mean, I would guess that would be accurate. Absolutely. Uh, so the the way that um, university. Uh, admissions work in China. Uh, it's not like the United States where you get into a university and then you show up and you can pick your major. Your major is determined, your admission to the university is dependent on the, the major that you have selected before you even take your exam. And so university admissions are based purely off of this exam that you get. Everyone takes the same exam. It's called uh, the, the Gaokao or the university entrance exam. And, uh, and you go to a particular major and you are slotted into that major and you can't, you're not like exploring yourself, right? Uh, a cast-like system almost. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and the, the most competitive majors and the ones uh, not surprisingly that tend to be best compensated in the labor market after graduation require higher test scores. So, you know, if you want to go and major in whatever it is, engineering or computer science, you know, you need, you need, I'm making this up, but you need a 100. And if you want to go major in sociology, you only need an 80. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, so, so that, that's another kind of uh, unique feature. Um, and, and, you know, trying to like most countries, uh, the, the, the best way to ensure upward socioeconomic mobility is, is through the higher education system. So if you're excluded from that, or if, if it's much more 
difficult to get access to that higher education system, uh, which it certainly is for rural people, uh, you know, that, that presents a real problem from a, from a standpoint of, of both educational inequality as well as, as economic inequality. Um, and, and the numbers are not moving in, in a good direction. So if you compare um, the makeup of the contemporary student body uh, with the way it looked in, say, um, the 1980s or even the 1990s, the number of um, working class students has gone down. The number of students from rural areas uh, has also gone down. Um, and so you can you can see the way in which during the process of market reform, which has certainly generated vast wealth and you know has improved the livelihoods uh, of millions of people in China, but it has also um, reinforced those kinds of, you know, market inequalities are now reinforcing those kinds of educational inequalities. And, you know, it creates this kind of vicious cycle. So despite all of these larger negative consequences that have uh, come from this inverted welfare system in China, do you think that the uh, system was an attempt to revive China, the China Chinese revival? Yeah, so um, Xi Jinping, uh, who is the current leader of China and the general secretary of the Communist Party, came to power in in 2012. Um, And when he first came to power, there was this new slogan that was associated with him, which was um, pursuing the, the China dream. And for a while, people were sort of unclear, like, what is the China dream? Is this just the American dream, but in China? Uh, And uh, they were a little vague about it for a while, Um, but he eventually came to define it more clearly. Uh, And the the China dream, according to to Xi Jinping and and the Communist Party, therefore, is uh, what, what he calls the great revival of the Chinese nation. Uh, a somewhat less charitable uh, translation of that term would be the great revival of the Chinese race. Uh, and, you know, we could get into the, the nuances about uh, the best way to translate. But anyway, the official translation is the, is the Chinese nation. Um, but I think there are some implications there about bloodlines. Um, so there's been this pretty hard, what I think should be described as a rightward turn. People get confused because he's, you know, the chairman of the Communist Party. But if it were in any other context, it, it's certainly a, a, an ethno-nationalist turn has happened under Xi Jinping, um, and which has really been helped, frankly, by ethno-nationalist turns in, in say, the United States uh, and, you know, the, the explicit um, uh, demonization of, of China uh, that has come from, uh, you know, certain political segments in the United States. Uh, it, it is... It, this kind of ethno-nationalist rhetoric has really uh, increased. Um, and so one of the things that I identify in in uh, this article is that there's a kind of tension, I think, at the heart of that rhetoric. Um, if we look at China's rise through the capitalist world system, um, there's one way in which it's pretty different from European powers, um, which is that the, the, the role of, if, if we look at the kind of social difference that has underwritten that economic expansion in Europe and the United States, race has been the key form of social difference, right? So if we look at the United States, the dispossession of indigenous people, enslavement uh, of Africans, et cetera, those were the kind of the key, the social foundations of American capitalism. Um, in China, 
the groups that are kind of subjected to that kind of dehumanization, dispossession, and exploitation are actually from the dominant race, right? They are Han people. China does have ethnic minorities. People may have uh, heard about the severe persecution of, of Uyghurs uh, in Northwest China and, and Tibetans. And, and it's not to minimize uh, the significance and, and the horror of, of what's happening in, in those um, you know, straightforwardly colonial situations in, in Western China. But from a pure demographic standpoint, the large majority of people um, are, are Han. Right. So like 90, 91, 92 percent of the country are Han um, and they're they're subjected to this this kind of dehumanization uh, that we see in other contexts, um, sort of at, in other contexts, we would see it being racialized. And in China, it's not. It's really dependent on this rural urban distinction, which takes on a, a kind of a racial character. It is much more porous um, than, than race is, of course, in the European colonial encounter. Um, would, it, would it largely be based on human capital or perceived human capital, like what they're what they're able to produce through labor or not able to produce? Yes, absolutely. So, and they talk, and you know, city governments talk about this very explicitly about their levels of human capital. And when we when we think about uh, the low end population, that's a sort of an assessment of their human capital. You know, it, it's not a, a purely kind of quantitative assessment as well, um, although. Migrant workers in China are largely um, Han people. There are important cultural differences as well. So people speak different dialects, they eat different foods, they have different self presentations. When you're in the city of Beijing, um, you know you can identify. You can oftentimes, anyway, identify someone as being a rural migrant based on what they're wearing, based on how they kind of hold themselves, and, and certainly by the way that they uh, by the way that they speak. Um, you know, that being said, it's not as rigid a difference as race is, you know, in the United States, which is much more intergenerational. So it's, it, it is a little bit more kind of porous in, in that respect. Being a Purdue, being a Purdue, uh, a Purdue guy, you know, this whole taste and distinction is really standing out here in the relationships that you mentioned in China between uh, people of high hoku and people with, without it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I just touched on, on the, the language question. I mean, if, if we're thinking about cultural capital in this context and, and what the, the key markers of distinction are, language is extremely important. And so this question of speaking, um, the term that they use is standard Mandarin. This is something that all Chinese students are evaluated on. In order to be a teacher, uh, you have to reach some certain level of standard Mandarin. Um, you know, Mandarin is just one of hundreds of languages that are spoken uh, in China and and hundreds of millions of people grow up speaking a completely different language. Uh, you know, this is a bit of an aside, but um, oftentimes uh, they, they refer to these different Chinese languages as dialects. That That's a political intervention, right? That's not a, a sort of a sociolinguistic or, or a linguistic uh, um, assessment. The different languages that people speak in China are as different as, you know, say, French is from Spanish, right? If you look at sort of Europe, right? Um, it, it is as linguistically, it's maybe in some ways more linguistically diverse than, than Western Europe. And then it, it makes, you know, it makes complete sense here in terms of, you know, just a narrative there as to why people in gig economy would be, you know, seen as undisciplined or, you know, unpunished needing to be, uh, needing to be more responsible and more focused on a, on a real job 
Uh, yes, absolutely. And uh, there's no question if we look at the uh, gig economy workers, people doing, uh, you know, platform economy, uh, the, the taxi drivers, the food delivery workers, uh, the street sweepers. In most big cities in China, these are exclusively rural migrants, right? So it's it's those jobs that are kind of in American context, oftentimes reserved for for immigrant workers. Um, in, in the Chinese context, are reserved for these these rural migrants. Excellent. Well, it's been a great joy talking about this book, and uh, I, you know, I hope that our listeners can uh, can gain something from this, either either prior to listen, uh, prior to reading the book, or or even adding to what they've learned after reading the book. But you know, I have one more question to ask before uh, before we go. What are you working on now? What's your next project? <laughs> oh man, it's a bit of a sensitive question. Uh, as any China scholar can attest, it's a it's a tough time uh, to study China uh, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, you know, due to China maintaining the zero COVID policy, it's basically impossible to get into the country. Uh, but I'm I'm not even that optimistic that whatever happens with COVID uh, in the years to come, um, I, I'm not optimistic about getting in or being able to do research because the the sort of the more long-term and in some ways more intractable problem is the political situation. Um, so I've, I've known for a number of years that it was unlikely that I'd be able to get back in. And as someone who does uh, ethnography and interview-based research on somewhat politically sensitive topics, you know, it's really essential for me to be in the country face-to-face and talking to people in order to do my work. Um, and it's just very unlikely that I'll be able to do it. So I've had, like like many China scholars, I've had to, to shift topics. And, and I've just begun thinking about um, a new project. Uh, and the focus is going to be how China's entrance into global capitalism has impacted workers uh, and labor movements in uh, neighboring societies, uh, beginning by focusing on Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, and, and Singapore, which have very close economic relations uh, with China. And so, um, you know, China's rise uh, in global capitalism has had profound impacts. Uh, part of what motivates this maybe is as as an American and, and looking about looking at the, the process of deindustrialization and all of the political consequences that it's had uh, here. Um, but it's had similarly massive effects uh, on those places in, in some ways more given their proximity and given the, the deep intertwining of their economies. Um, so, uh, and I might not be able to get into Hong Kong, but uh, I, I can get into Taiwan uh, and to Singapore. I can still utilize some of my uh, language skills. So, um, so that's, that's what's next. Excellent. Yeah, I'm a... I'm not an ethnographer or a, you know, participant observer. Inter, uh, my research methods mostly focus on discourse analysis, so looking at uh, looking at media reports and representations of the people who are being observed uh, by journalists, which is uh, you know th- that too has its place in China and the, and the uh, you know the oppression or call it the uh, uh, scrutiny that journalists have gotten in, in China, you know either give the right message or get out. It sure does. It is uh, a tough time to be a journalist in China. And I have a lot of respect for, for folks who are working under extremely difficult circumstances. Uh, and sociologists, too, are, are facing some of those same pressures there. Yes. Well, thank you again for your time. And uh, uh, for my listeners, this is another episode of New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Have a great day.